Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. Because it's felt to be uh, maybe insincere at some level. And we, well, I think we have a bit of a tendency now to privilege actions that we think of as being spontaneous. And we associate spontaneity with emotion. And actually, that's not, that's not quite true. Because there are all kinds of things that we do which are ritual actions, which we don't even realize they are ritual actions. I mean, the way that we greet each other, the way that we might, you know, with some people, be shaking a hand with another person. It might be hugging uh, or, or kissing, and, and interestingly, just just the number of times that you kiss somebody's cheek as you greet them. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm married to a Dutch woman. It's three times in the Netherlands, uh, but my sister-in-law is Polish, and it's more than three. And uh, with the French, it would be tend to be two, and, and with the English, it might be one if you're lucky. So uh, we have all kinds of little actions that are ritual, um, and I think really do define the way that we feel towards each other and, and how we act in response to each other. And as you say, a, a football match, you know, uh, you, you respond together. You're, it's spontaneous, but everybody does the same thing because it's become an action that we share. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this Christmas morning. Well, given the day that's in it, we're going to slow it all down, get a bit reflective and explore one of the most influential books in human history, The Book of Common Prayer, with British writer, teacher and literary scholar Brian Cummings, who argues in The Book of Common Prayer, a very short introduction, that a liturgy is a book of everyday life, a place for for the worship of the divine, but also for the care of the self in the face of sickness, anxiety and death. Brian goes on to state, the Book of Common Prayer has divided users between those whom it grants a sense of belonging and those whom it excludes. So what is the Book of Common Prayer? How did it come into being? And how important is ritual in everyday life? So my name is Brian Cummings. I'm a a professor of English at the University of York in, in England. Um, and I, I write on, on a range of authors, a lot of them from the Renaissance period, Shakespeare, Milton, and others. Uh, but I also have a special interest in the relationship between the history of religion and the history of literature, and the history of the Reformation in relation to the history of literature. And uh, I've written quite a few books in that sort of area. My latest book is called uh, The Book of Common Prayer, A Very Short Introduction, and it's published by Oxford University Press. Really well done on The Book of Common Prayer, Brian. I have to say it was an illuminating read. What was so interesting about the book was that how this Book of Common Prayer, how it's been understood, received, engaged with all across the world is so, so differently. And it's so, so interesting to think that here we are this morning and how one book is being uh, uh, prayed with and said and recounted all across the world. Tell me, I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off. When I say the word prayer, what do you automatically think of? What jumps into your head? Where do you go? Well, prayer is uh, such a a fundamental human activity. Uh, I I suppose we associate it most strongly with religion. It defines not just Christian religion, but all kinds of worldwide religion. 
uh, a sense of uh, how one might speak to a divine creator. Uh, also, though, how one might, in that conversation with a divine creator, uh, position oneself, think about one's anxieties, one's problems, uh, the problems of other people, the problems of a whole nation. Uh, and it's a way of sorting out uh, a sense of, of human difficulty, I think. Um, and at the same time, an attempt to uh, to express that, I suppose, in terms of a kind of a, a yearning for something else, a, a yearning for something perhaps even beyond ourselves in terms of how we approach our everyday lives. It's a very complex term. It's, 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 it is about religion, but it's also a reflection on ourselves at the same time. But I suppose you don't have to be religious to pray. Sure you don't? No, I, you don't. Um, and I think a lot of people are familiar with the language of prayer uh, who wouldn't think of themselves as being religious at all. Um, I mean, swearing is quite close to prayer in certain ways, and people, you know, they're, they're somewhere between uh, uh, you know, thinking in, in one way and thinking another way when they do that. But also, if, you know, if, if you've just got a, a problem in your, in your daily life, I mean, you know, you, 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 you might express it in something like uh, a prayer. I wasn't expecting to read about David Bowie in the Book of Common Prayer. I might get you to talk me through that one. Well, Bowie was, uh, I mean, I, I'm of an age where Bowie mattered enormously to me when I was in my teens. Um, but, but Bowie was uh, somebody who, who took in language and rhythm and music and sound, obviously, from all sorts of places. And he had, you know, he had phrases in his head that he then would just change, just tweak slightly. Uh, and it was something I was thinking about when I was writing the book. That and it, was, it was the period, actually, you know, when when Bowie died, which was an enormous shock to me. Um, and a number of songs were coming into my head, but one was uh, "Ashes to Ashes," which has got as its refrain "Ashes to Ashes, Funk to Funky," which is a classic example of Bowie both taking us into very, very ancient language and at the same time twisting it. To be right in the in the moment and the moment now, and it's you know it's it's somewhere between a reflection on something very very deep with within him, I think. But I think also at that point in 1980, you know, he was thinking about 1970s counterculture and his own part in it, uh, and yeah, with that 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 sense of extraordinary self consciousness that he had. Could it be argued though that it is a nod? to the Book of Common Prayer? Well, it is a nod, whether he wants it to be or not. And, and it's actually older than the Book of Common Prayer. The, the phrase, uh, ashes to ashes, is, is translated directly from the Latin. And it, it, it's part of, of, of Catholic liturgy uh, in the Middle Ages. Um, and it's, it's one of those phrases that is so resonant and so old that people don't even know where it, where it comes from. Um, it, it, it's, just, it's just part of our, it's a deep part of our language. It's interesting to think, Brian, that, you know, whatever, you know, it's Christmas morning now, but whatever day of the week that it is, or in terms of whatever ceremony, whether it's births, deaths and marriages, that we have these books of prayer that are used all around the world. And the Book of Common Prayer, um, although while associated with um, Britain and Empire, is very much a book that's been read all over the world, all through the centuries, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think when you put it in the context of, of you know, birth, marriage, death, I mean, those are the fundamental rites of passage in, in, in most people's lives in one way or another. And, uh, you know, 
religions are, are, are necessary at, at those moments, and not and not just for religious people. Um, you know, when my when my mother died, what my father wanted was some ritual, even though they were both atheists, and and uh, it wasn't a question of belief at that point. It was just that my father needed a way uh, of saying goodbye in a way that's a bit more formal and uh, and, and and lifted up from just everyday language. So I, I think it's a fundamental part of the way in which we live our lives. Could it be argued, Brian, that the Book of Common Prayer is more than just a book? Oh, I think absolutely. I think it it it, it also opens out the question of of, of how a book might work um, culturally. But the first thing I think I'd say about it is that I suppose we associate Christianity with the Bible um, most of all, and we then think of it as a text. Um, we think of that text as reflecting certain kinds of belief, perhaps anyway. But actually, um, Christianity, like every religion, is not just, I mean, it might be based upon a scripture, but it is about a practice. It's about doing things together, uh, people coming together in an, you know, in an act of worship, or as we say, in a, in a funeral, or whatever it might be, and having a common language between them. And in that sense, although it's taken from a book which has a precise text and a text that actually, certainly in the case of the book Compre, you have to follow those words. It's actually a legal requirement to do that. Nonetheless, these are words that are shared and shared in circumstances that um, take us into the centre of, of, of the way we feel about ourselves. Brian, I might get you just to talk me through the actual book's um, history in terms of when it was written, how it was introduced, and maybe a little bit about the cultural and political background um, to to the book being published. Yes, well, it's very much a book of the Reformation. And yet there is, a, I suppose, a, a, an initial kind of peculiarity about the English Reformation that for 15 years after Henry VIII broke with the Church of Rome, Actually, the church in England carried on with the Latin rituals, uh, and Henry VIII was was buried with a requiem mass in in Latin. So the Book of Common Prayer is from a slightly later period than Henry VIII, that I suppose we'd normally think of as being the, uh, the, the starting point of the English Reformation. It's in the reign of Edward VI. And in the reign of Edward VI, the boy king, uh, Protestants uh, in England began to put their stamp on, on a new religion. So it wasn't just a political question of the arrangement with, with Rome. It was now a way of reflecting uh, a, a new religion, very much influenced by, uh, by continental trends and, 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 and massive changes. Um, and at that point, there were, I think there were two things that were very prominently in mind. Uh, one was to do with using the vernacular, using English rather than using Latin. Uh, but the other was to do with what rituals are. And Protestants were very concerned about what they called superstition or a sense that um, religious rituals were kinds of magic. And they were trying to get rid of those sorts of aspects of, of ritual and to make it more to do with uh, a statement of belief or a statement of penitence um, in, in, a, in a relationship with, with God. Um, the guy who's most responsible for it is Thomas Cranmer, who was Henry VIII's Archbishop of Canterbury, who he initially brought in to help him with his divorce. But Cranmer had a, a really interesting and individual influence on the Reformation in England. He went from being a, 
a Catholic priest to being a more and more radical Protestant. Uh, and yet he was also extremely cautious um, and did things very slowly by slowly. Uh, so that 15-year period that it takes to get from the break with Rome to a liturgy in English is very much reflecting Cranmer's own very slow but persistent change of change of mind over fundamentals in Christian thinking. And how progressive a text was it at the time? Like I was reading through different passages and so on on the kind of big significant parts in ceremony and um, the language seemed quite difficult to me. But at the time, presumably it was hugely accessible and, you know, would have related to your average person on the street, did it? Well, that's an interesting question. I think for a long time, the Church of England has liked to say that having the ritual in English was a kind of democratizing thing. But actually, I don't think democracy was in the heads of, uh, of the, uh, the heads of the Church of England at the time. Um, it's much more to do with um, having an order of service that people can understand and therefore reflects their own personal faith rather than it being the language of the church, which it was felt to be in Latin. So the, the, the Latin mass was a language of the church which would work whether or not individual believers were following it in a precise way. Actually, I think people did follow the mass in Latin. In, you know, they, they knew what was going on, but of course they obviously weren't following it word for word. But for a Protestant, it was a key thing that you could sort of internalize um, faith and then therefore it needed to be understood word for word. And in that sense, the, the language is actually fundamental. There's another very interesting, uh, almost a kind of contradiction about the book compound, the way that it gets formulated, that it, it is very much a, pro I mean, certainly in terms of its, uh, its initial introduction, it's very much a Protestant book. And it was regarded as absolutely shocking to many, to many Catholics to do this at all. But the words that Cranmer uh, introduced, not just not necessarily by composing, because it was more like a kind of committee effort to bring the book into being, but the words that he chose for the services were very often translated from the Latin uh, services that, that pre-existed, but with crucial things left out or used in a different way. So in a very good example is the beginning of, of morning prayer, which um, begins with uh, the priest uh, saying the Lord's Prayer. Now, in the Latin service before the Reformation, that would happen, but the priest would say it quietly to himself, whereas in the Book of Common Prayer, it says he has to say it outwardly to the, uh, to the congregation in a loud voice. And again, that would have been followed before the Reformation immediately by the Ave Maria. But in the Protestant service, that bit is cut. So you have this, um, it's, rather than it being a, a new order of service, it's, it's very intricate rela related to services that existed before the Reformation. It's interesting, though, that when, let's say, whoever goes to Mass or whatever they get up to, you know, most people like all the bells, um, you know, the music, uh, the psalms, all of that type of stuff. And that kind of adds a kind of a collective value in it. It kind of binds people together, creates that sense of community. But it's fairly stripped down as far as I can make out in the Book of Common Prayer, isn't it? Yes. Um, 
a lot of things are simply shortened. I mean, the two most controversial areas in uh, in, in changing a, a Catholic to a, a post-Reformation service are to do with the, the, the Mass or the Communion or the Eucharist, as we might say, on the one hand, and services to do with death on the other hand. So um, in, in, if you look at a, a now at a surviving manuscript of a, a medieval service book, you'll have two really thick volumes uh, in comparison to the Book of Common Prayer, which is you know, a relatively slim book. Um, I mean, it's, it's complex and it's, 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 it's several hundred pages, but it's, it's nothing like the length of the services that preceded it. So it, it, is, it is stripped down. And there's a very conscious effort to, uh, to not do certain things as well as to do, uh, to do certain other things. So again, if you take the, the Mass, the um, crucial elements of, of ritual in which the host is elevated so that everybody sees it at the, at the moment of the, of the sort of the miracle of the, of the mass, as, it, as one might call it, the sort of moment of transformation of, uh, of bread and wine into, into holy, uh, holy substances. Those sorts of things, there's a very careful regulation and supervision of how that happens in, in the English service, so that it's quite clear that certain things are not happening as well as certain other things are happening. In your introductions, you talk about the cultural significance of the book and, you know, the Book of Common Prayer is as almost as read as uh, Shakespeare's sonnets. And if we look at, you know, whether it's the Bible, whatever, that, you know, the kind of key books that have been carried through history. But some people would see the Book of Common Prayer as a book of oppression associated, you know, clearly with British um, Empire, the British Empire, and I suppose all the cultural apparatus that went with that. So I'm just wondering what you say to this, because clearly it's a book that's been celebrated through the years, but it does come with a political tinge that some might not be so comfortable with. I think that's absolutely vital to understanding it. It's, it's a book which, um, on the one hand, proclaims a certain kind of inclusion or sense of belonging, for that matter. And certainly you could say that, you know, from a point of view of English social conformity, um, and, and this grows, as you say, right around the world over, over time. You could say that as a shared language, it can be the words that bring, that bring us together. But every time that happened, it was also excluding other people. And actually, you know, interestingly, in relation to our conversation today, it's in Ireland that that starts. So the, the Book of Common Prayer, its first edition outside of England was for Ireland in, 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 uh, in 1515. It's the first book printed in, in Dublin. And it's an act of imposition at that moment to have a book in English at all, of course, because uh, the, the, the people of Ireland were not English speakers. Um, so it's, it's an imposition straight away. And, that, and that's still the case today. I mean, I was at a funeral a few days ago, a dear old friend, and I was sitting with with, with Irish friends in the same pew. And of course, the, the language excludes and includes at the same time. You know, they're, they're, they're words that are not familiar to some people because that's not the way they do things. And yet for other people, they're the words that, that, that everybody says I know, at a certain time in, in life. It's such an interesting space, so when you think about it, to hold that tension, because it, it comes with so many different layers of meaning, doesn't it, as a book? Absolutely. And not many books can actually do that. Not many books do that. In fact, I, I think in some ways, although perhaps this is a bit of a, 
a bold statement. There, there are ways in which ritual books are more significant in that way than the Bible. Obviously, the Bible is, is fundamental in terms of being the holy book. And it, and it is, uh, you know, and it becomes through translations like the uh, the King James Bible in, in, in England. It, you know, it becomes a particular form of words that people are very familiar with. But a prayer book brings people together on a weekly basis. They're standing in the same place and the same words are said in the same order over and over again through their lives. Uh, and that's a very fundamental act. And there's absolutely no doubt that in terms of uh, the way that the British Empire developed, the Book of Common Prayer was, was, was crucial all the time. It was a book that was, that was translated into about 200 different languages, most of them for the purposes of spreading uh, a particular notion of an English value system into every single part of the of the empire. You have a very interesting passage on body, memory and prayer. And you write, in prayer the body remembers what to do. It kneels or stands as if by instinct. And I thought that was so interesting. Um, there's a beauty to that, isn't there? There is something beautiful about it. Um, there is something, I think, very moving about a sense of uh, words that make you do things almost without knowing what it is that you're doing, um, which convey a, an immediate sense of uh, reverence or of uh, or, or, or deep commitment to something, which is not just a question of the words that we say, but the bodily actions that we make in relation to them. But they again, the, the gestures as well as the words are divisive. In some ways, they're the most divisive thing. So things that we might think of as being perhaps now uh, in, a, in a more secular time, um, just nice actions, uh, you know, like making the sign of the cross. Making the sign of the cross in the 16th and 17th century was a deeply divisive action. And uh, Puritans, as we might roughly call them, uh, on the whole, really disapproved of those sorts of, as they thought, superstitious rituals. So... Uh, signing with signing the cross on on a baby's forehead in in baptism, which is there in the Book of Common Prayer, uh, you would get on the one hand uh, people stopping the priest from doing it because they felt so strongly that that shouldn't happen, or on other occasions, if it was a more Puritan leaning priest who who left it out, you would get a family complaining and saying our baby hasn't been baptized properly because the sign of the cross was not done. So the, the ritual actions that we make are, are kind of fundamental to our sense of whether things are actually happening or not. But you could be at a musical performance, Brian, or you could be, you know, um, at a sports match, or you could just kind of, kind of leap or jump for joy, and you may kind of hold your hands in a sort of kind of a prayer position. And, I mean, that's um, so true. It's a celebration of life, and it doesn't have to come with all the kind of the heavy duty stuff associated. It's just a, well, a burst of emotion, and I suppose in terms of how we're formed and educated through childhood, it's the prayer position, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. That there's a there's a bit of a modern bias against ritual because it's felt to be uh, maybe insincere at some level. And we, well, I think we have a bit of a tendency now to privilege actions that we think of as being spontaneous and we associate spontaneity with emotion. And actually, that's not, that's not quite true because there are all kinds of things that we do 
which are ritual actions, which we don't even realize they are ritual actions. I mean, the way that we greet each other, the way that we might, you know, with some people be shaking a hand with another person, it might be hugging uh, or, or kissing. And, and interestingly, just, just the number of times that you kiss somebody's cheek as you greet them. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm married to a Dutch woman. It's three times in the Netherlands. Uh, but my sister-in-law is Polish and it's more than three. And uh, with the French, it would be tend to be two, and, and with the English, it might be one if you're lucky. So uh, we have all kinds of little actions that are ritual, um, and I think really do define the way that we feel towards each other and, and how we act in response to each other. And as you say, a, a football match, you know, uh, you, you respond together. You're, it's spontaneous, but everybody does the same thing because it's become an action that we share. Going out for a drink, eating a meal, lighting a candle, whatever Absolutely. it is. Do you Absolutely. know what I mean? But it is yeah. interesting to see, you know, like Christmas, here we all are, you know, and um, lots of families forced together for lots of different reasons and all the rituals that are kind of brought together <laughs> around that. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the very important stuff is probably missing nowadays. And that may be just as the time and space sitting with with friends with whatever and just that space for togetherness rather than all the kind of prescribed rituals uh, you know of shopping presents and all the happy larry stuff i think there is a quite a widespread sense of uh, of some form of loss over the last generation or two in relation to things that families do together i mean uh, it, it may well be that we're being falsely nostalgic about this and and thinking that th- 